Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today, as we both know, if you read the episode title, we're going to be talking about exposition. What is exposition? How do we do some exposition? And why do we need exposition? So what is exposition? Well, I thought we, we already knew this. In case you don't know, Nick, exposition is information revealed to the audience. Before we get into how we reveal information through exposition, let's talk about what we're actually revealing. So I think there are four kind of main categories in terms of what we can reveal through exposition. There's character, there's story, macro or world, and then meta information. Diving into character, I think the main thing is obviously who they are as people, both their personality and their narrative purpose, their job or role that they play within the show. Are they the protagonist? Are they the antagonist, etc.? Yeah, I think there's also a note that we should be making right now about the backstory aspect of character and that you should not be confusing backstory and exposition. There's a lot of blockbuster movies and a lot of failed pilots right now that shoehorn these two like they're interchangeable. If you have a character that's adopted and is angry with their adoptive parents and you see them shout, oh, dad, I'm so angry with you. You, you adopted me, blah, blah, blah. I feel betrayed by you for whatever you did. Then why do you need that sort of exposition in the, in the dialogue? That's unneeded. That's backstory. And so when Nick talks about revealing character and exposition, that is not the same as backstory. So understand the difference there. Especially as they both know that he was adopted. So no reason for them to be telling each other that. And another thing about character is also what they're feeling or thinking, their emotions and thoughts. So moving along to plot and story, through that exposition, we can find what's the kind of status quo of this world? How has that changed? What's the case of the week? Also, how does that kind of progress and how does it resolve? Each of those things are bits of information can be meted out and revealed to progress that story along. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be all in the dialogue. Again, going to the example of CSI, which is a procedural, when it came on air and introduced a new language and a new visual language to convey plot advancement, specifically clue discoveries with very tight shots of hair or minuscule school elements that had to be visualized to understand the advancement in that in that plot or that story even hacking and their like enhanced mantra was just a shortcut way in the story to explain how step b led to step c and so on in the case exactly don't always presume that exposition means characters telling each other something which we'll get into later moving on to the macro category under this banner it's stuff like information about the world uh, the premise and the concept so the subcategories of that could be what's the time period what's the location what are the rules of this world and that can expand into sort of the genre of the world or what's the technology is there fantasy is there magic is it mundane in terms of tone is it heightened is it grounded is it gritty is it a disney show a lot of shows have their iconic opening scenes revealing that premise I always go back to the pilot of Lost, where you have this guy in a suit waking up. He's disoriented. He's in the middle of a jungle. There's bamboo trees around him. He's in a suit. So you're like, what is this guy in a suit doing in a forest with bamboo trees? And then he hears something and he starts running through the trees in the jungle. And suddenly you see a beach being revealed. And then the camera pivots. And as he runs towards the noise, you see this gigantic plane crash in the middle of the beach. And that just tells you visually in a minute everything you need to know about the premise of Lost. 
And so that last category, we're talking about meta information or meta exposition, that is kind of things above and beyond the world of the show that exist outside of it. So for example, the genre again, but like sort of your expectations about genre, maybe the themes that are being conveyed through there and also the overall structure narratively. Yeah, it's also information within the narrative that needs to be conveyed only to the audience. So for example, chirons and things that appear on screen are part of that meta exposition. So just touching on the note about genre, and I think it's a really important one, depending on on the genre of the show, certain kinds of exposition are more prevalent and are more relevant. For example, in comedy, there's often exposition through humor and jokes, as opposed to that doesn't really happen that much in drama. But on the flip side, a lot of these jokes in comedy require the audience to have certain knowledge, a pre-existing knowledge, for them to find it funny. For example, jokes that stem from what happened in the last scene, or your knowledge of the character of Sheldon in Big Bang Theory. It might not be funny for any random person in the world to say, I hate cats, but it's hilarious for some particular character who we know well. Yeah, I mean, exposition in drama is especially relevant to the genre you are going to be digging into. For example, procedurals, there's a lot of those expositionary elements that relate to the case of the week or the patient of the story. You know, it's like a mystery. Think back to even Sherlock Holmes stories. Watson is there in part to explain to us, the audience, what is going on in the case and what is going on in Sherlock's head and what he's doing. So he's a vessel for that exposition. In the same way you have that in a lot of sci-fi or genre shows, which are so much about world building. Sci-fi is probably one of the most expositional heavy genres out there. And just looking at how they do that can tell you a lot about the way the writers think about the writing. So for example, Stargate SG-1 or Star Trek, the next generation, and even the original Star Trek actually, have a lot of those techno-babble characters that are there just to spit out information. Carter, Daniel Jackson in Stargate, or you have Geordi or Data in Star Trek. And I think part of the reason why they're there is the fear of alienating their viewers. No pun intended, but it is a way to make them feel at home when they're in completely alien context. And in fact, there's a whole TV trope page about characters just there for expositionary purposes, including Giles for Buffy. Like Basil Exposition and Austin Powers. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I do wonder, we should look it up on the on the TV shows page if he's listed on there. And then finally, there's also, even the, on the street dramas, like something like Breaking Bad, there's a lot of those moments between the moments, character nuances that tell you so much about who they are as people. You know, it's all those intrinsic moments that are hard to pin down when you're right, but a lot of those successful dramas are acclaimed because they pull off those little moments, these little beats, while others are going to be considered too on the nose or melodramatic. So I think the distinction there is also key in exploring your writing. Exactly. A lot of the best exposition is subtle and left to the audience to put together rather than forced down their throat. So now that we know broadly what the kind of information that we're trying to expose is, how do we do that? What are the techniques? Again, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. They're just things we want to highlight that either we do ourselves or we appreciate in specific TV shows, episodes, scripts. But just immediately before we delve into it, we should touch on what is good exposition versus bad exposition. Well, I think the quintessential rule is always show, don't tell. It isn't about telling how someone feels or what someone does, but demonstrating that. 
And to me, that means you need to make that exposition compelling. Whether it's something invisible, visible, overt, or covert, it needs to be first and foremost relevant to your narrative and entertaining because after all, this is an entertainment medium. And that is the primary reason for why the script even exists is to entertain people. That is what a good scene is. You know, you have a situation you're creating so that the audience can experience the story and the characters rather than having some Greek chorus just tell them what is happening. And if you take a step back and just think of what exposition is, it is basically information revealed to you, as we just said. So in my mind, that means it is an answer. So if you don't set up the question to that answer, then it either won't make sense or will stick out like a sore thumb. Think of someone just giving you the punchline to a joke without setting it up. On the flip side, there's also a case to be made about less is more. That is why shows from Bat Robot or J.J. Abrams shows have made their entire business model around this concept of a mystery box because mystery is a powerful narrative element. The question is asked, but not answered. So this all boils down to actively learning versus passively receiving information and info dumping on the audience versus having something intrinsically built up within the narrative. These are the elements we're going to be delving into right now. Those are some really great points. So before we get into these list of techniques, I just want to say that almost any of these can either be within the world of the narrative, so it's what they call diegetic, or it can be outside of it, which is non-diegetic or meta. So the distinction there is whether the characters actually know this or whether only the audience knows knows this. So moving into dialogue, practically it's either a discussion between characters or it could even be a monologue with just one character or it could even be a voiceover. Dialogue is often left to do the heavy lifting, especially with novice writers who don't really know how to do some exposition. So they just shoehorn like a crutch that content in the character's mouth. Particularly voiceover, I think, has become such a big trope that people misuse it all the time. When it's done well, it's great. When it's done badly, it's like, oh my god, not again. Oh, absolutely. So many shows these days have voiceovers. If you look at probably half of ABC's slate, uh, I think Andy Wire a few years back did the whole article about voiceover. And in my mind, a successful voiceover is the O that has a direct narrative impact, whether within the story or for the audience. So if you think back to successful movies that have voiceovers, for me, at least they're uh, movies like Election, American Psycho, Usual Suspects, or even Fight Club. And that's because those movies actually have unreliable narrators. So what you here is not often what you see or what you should be believing. And voiceover today is it's so overused. And I think a lot of it stems from this idea that it's just someone telling you exactly how they feel or telling you exactly what they see on screen or telling you exactly what they do. And that's almost cheat to it's just pointless. like say, redundant. say the, the yeah. obvious. I really agree with that in terms of voiceover or even dialogue being used in a way that contrasts or subverts what is happening on screen. A really great example of that for me is in The Simpsons as always. Uh, <laughs> there's an episode where uh, Marge is pregnant. This is a flashback episode. It hasn't told Previously Homer yet. On the Simpsons. Yeah, but all of her friends are throwing her a surprise baby shower and Homer is just about to get home from his new job at the bowling alley. So Homer is walking along. He's like, oh, another perfect day in my perfect life with my perfect job. Chief Wiggum drives by and he's like, hey, you just heard the news over the squawk box. That's some nice work, Homer. And Homer's like, thank you. Thank you very much. It is nice work, thinking he's talking about his bowling alley job. Apu comes by. He's like, oh, Mr. Simpson, I just heard about your little bundle of joy. Can Congratulations, sir. And Homer's like, it's true. The bundle is little, but I'm not in it for the money. Moe comes by. He's like, hey, Homer, way to get Marge pregnant. Ha ha. And, and Homer's like, this is getting very abstract, but thank you. I do enjoy working at the bowling alley. And then Homer opens the door, walks into the house, and Homer's like, hey, wait a second. What are all these presents? It looks like you're showering Marge with gifts. Hmm. With little tiny baby-sized gifts. 
eh, well, I'll be in the tub. Walks off, and Maud's like, oh, by the way, congratulations on your new job, Harmer. And Harmer's like, new job? Maud is pregnant? No! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is the definition of, of exposition that's done in an entertaining way instead exactly. of just, like, dumping it on the characters. And I think the worst thing you can do, and I think it even, um, wasn't there a point, I think Mo said straight up, like, congratulations on making Marge pregnant? Yeah. I think that is the point where you're like, oh, they're actually making fun of exposition in some way because exactly. it's like a character just, like, stating outright <laughs> the <laughs> information. It's like, as we both know, Marge is pregnant. Yeah. Here's uh, how they could have played this scene. Marge, hey, Homer, I'm pregnant. Homer, no. No. <laughs> how much less interesting would have that have <laughs> right. been? You know? I think part of it is also this idea that you have different points of views, right? And when you have characters being characters and people and having different ways of talking and different ways of speaking, that shines a different light on that perspective. And unless you have something different that what we see or know, then dialogue should not be about just stating information. The only time those kinds of moments work is because it's almost like a Rashomon type thing where you have people experiencing different things and then retelling their specific subjective experience. And so ultimately, expository dialogue is not just about the content and what you say, but also how you say, as Nick so artfully demonstrated with the, <laughs> the, uh, the Simpsons. There's also a thing about accents, syntax, the complexity of the vocabulary and the grammar and the punctuation. I mean, the way I talk and the way Nick talks indicates a lot about where we're from and what we do, I guess, for a living, is it? I don't know about that last part, but <laughs> definitely at least where we're from, if yeah. anything. Now that we've looked at the dialogue, there's also this little bit called the action or the prose, prose writing. And there's so much exposition that can be done through the prose. It's the visual imagery of the script. It's what you're going to write for the reader, even more so than the audience, I'd argue. But there's also part of it that's the action. Sometimes what is being said in dialogue can take on a different or opposite meaning in combination with actions of visuals. So another comedy example is a great show on FX called Man Seeking Woman. So this is the opening scene of the pilot. We see this guy, Josh, played by Jay Barakel. He, sitting on a bed, pulls open a shoebox labeled Maggie, takes out a Valentine's Day card, a dried rose, photo booth photos of him and this woman kissing. Then he gets a knock on the door and his friends have arrived to see how he's doing. He hides the shoebox. He keeps telling him he's great. You know, he's clearing away all these things in his apartment, like empty instant noodle containers, accumulated trash tissues. He's clearly not doing great. He tries to swipe away a screensaver with all these romantic pictures of him and Maggie, only to reveal like a porn website on there. So the text here is that he's fine. That's what he's saying. But the visuals and his behavior, the subtext is that he's had a breakup. He's been depressed and alone in his apartment. He still isn't over his ex-girlfriend. So then as the scene progresses, the framed picture of her that he hid under his bed literally flies out and floats around the room like it's possessed. So they bring in a priest to exercise his ex-girlfriend from his, his life. So again, all that happened in this scene was a guy sitting on his bed some friends come in they ask how he is and he says i'm fine a bunch of times if that's how that scene played out with nothing else going on in the actions and visuals it would have been an incredibly boring scene and right. it would have accomplished one thing but when you contrast it and have fun with the kind of stuff that's happening around him the kind of stuff that negates and subverts what he's saying then suddenly that exposition is coming out in a much more interesting way than him saying oh yeah it's been a while since maggie and i broke <laughs> up i've been really sad i've just been sitting around not doing anything <laughs> you know, so think about those clever ways in which you can tell those things. 
there's so much you can do on the character front, I feel like, and the action on the exhibition level. Even when a character seems to be passively receiving information, which again is not a good thing as we as we brought up earlier, I think you can still make them active through the way they react and the mannerism. How does a character express that emotion? I think tells a lot about what they think. And exposition through character moments like these makes something pop off the page. And one of my favorite examples of that is from the pilot of Breaking Bad, where Walter White learns that he has a terminal illness. Think of how would you react to that news? How does that define who you are? And how does that define Walter White? And so to illustrate that example, I did ask Nick to read this little excerpt from the Breaking Bad script. We now go live to a theatrical production (laughs) of Breaking Bad. Interior, Dr. Belknap's office, exam area, day. Cut to Walt in his street clothes, sitting in a red leather chair. He's staring almost directly into the camera. Silence. Up from it rises a faint, sort of buzzy, shimmering tinnitus sound. It's the ringing in Walt's ears. It gets louder as we slowly creep in on Walt's face. He's staring at us blankly. He's staring at Walt's POV, Dr. Belknap. Dr. Belknap is a balding man in his late 50s. On a good day, he's maybe avuncular. He's sitting behind his desk, looking right at us, talking in slight, slow motion. We don't hear a single word he's saying. We only hear the buzzy ringing. Closer POV, we tilt down from Belknap's face, his moving lips, to his doctor's coat. On the pristine white of his lapel, there's a spot of yellow mustard. We fixate on it. Suddenly, Dr. Belknap, Mr. White, are you listening? We've snapped out of it. The sound in the room is normal. No more slow motion. Walt looks up from the man's lapel. Walt. Yeah. Dr. Belknap, did you... You understood what I've said to you. Walt. Yeah. Multiple myeloma. Stage three. A beat. Best case scenario with chemo will live another two years. Off the man's gaze. It's just... You've got mustard on your... You got, you got mustard there. Walt points. Belknap glances down at the spot on his lapel, then back up at Walt. He has no idea what to say to that. Off Walt looking very matter-of-fact, disconcertingly so. Thank you, Nick. That was a very powerful moment. Looking at that scene, what does that scene tell us? Obviously, that the main character has two years to live. But more importantly, was what we learned by how the character reacted. Was he upset? Was he scared? This news actually sent him into a state of shock, where he sort of zoned out into a coping mechanism so that he doesn't have to deal with the bad news. It's escaping reality. It's finding a way out, which in my mind is one of the things the show is about. And so there was an organic way for the show to exposit to us that he has stage three cancer, but they did it in a way that shows more about who Walt is rather than just this uh, matter of fact statement. I think in this example and in the previous example, it's more often about what a character is not saying than what they are saying. So many other shows, we keep repeating ourselves, but I think so many other shows are about those moments between the moments, and it's about the subtlety of exposition rather than just uh, <laughs> stating things that right. And in fact, speaking of uh, stating things that right, a lot of people assume, again, dialogue is one way of exposing character, but if you look at the prose, if you look at the writing on the page, one of the most overlooked part of the script, in my mind, is character descriptions. It can be boring and describe someone with one-word adjectives, or you can immediately give the reader a sense of who that character is actually beyond his or her outward appearance. The same with names, which can reveal so much about the thematics of who they are. Just quickly going to Lost again, the fact that they are called John Locke or Desmond Hume, it's a bit on the nose with the thematic of the show, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, it gives you so much about who they are and what they mean for the show. Even like Jack Shepard, he's the shepherd, right. he's the leader, totally. he's, you know, these, these people, that kind of thing. I read a lot of scripts for my job, and certainly character descriptions is one of the things that's most underutilized. It's just like, Rebecca, 27. 
seven, young and attractive. And like, that's it. It's like, oh my uh, God, like I need to know who this person is, not the fact they're going to hire an attractive actress. Of course they are. It's Hollywood. Like, <laughs> another really important thing to note about prose writing is that you can't just write in the action how they're feeling or what they're thinking. That's a big no-no, and there's no way that that's going to come across on screen. You're doing it purely for the sake of the reader. There's some leeway there when you do it artfully, but particularly if as a shorthand, for example, if you say, he's angry, that's preferable to writing, John's eyebrows lower and face wrinkles and eyes glaze over or whatever, because especially as people could misinterpret that as something else. Usually a visual is better. So instead of saying John is angry, you could say like John scowls. If you were to state, I write, John is angry, or this thing and just point blank state how they feel. I think, at least for me, it really bugs me when I read it because it almost force feeds me how I should be feeling because the whole point of a script or a story is to feel catharsis and to feel the way the, the characters feel. So it's like writing in the script laugh track or like mm -hmm. laugh now. You know, it doesn't quite work on that level. It also force feeds the actor, which is another right. big no-no. They want to be able to put their own interpretation on what's happening in the scene, and they should be able to know how the character is feeling from the context and what's happening, rather than you just telling them, all right, so you're really angry in this scene. Going deeper on the prose level, don't forget that this is a visual medium. You have so many opportunities to be visual and do some exposition through that. Props and settings are another part of, or another way of doing exposition. Walter White's hat literally transforms him into Heisenberg. The TARDIS, Doctor Who, right? The TARDIS is purposefully unobtrusive kind of police box that doubles as a time machine. There's a reason why that is. And the orange sofa from Central Perk and Friends is a centerpiece for communal character interactions as if it were a living room. You have all these opportunities in your script to show either through set or character or whatever they do, ways of expositing the themes and specifically narrowing down what your story is really about. And finally, just a note about science fiction or genre shows, I think people should really reconsider doing technobabble dialogue in their script. And that is because in my mind, an action piece is more powerful to convey something than someone stating something. So in other words, uh, showcasing the technical stuff is always going to be more powerful than someone saying the lasers, proton beams are not firing, sir. The actual machine breaking down is more powerful than someone stating this thing doesn't work properly. And it's such a big trope that there's like classic comebacks to it that are just like, give it to me in English, egghead. Or like, uh, you know, like, what uh, is that? You know, like all that kind of thing. Like if anytime you hear that, if like, if you write a line and then that pops into your head as the first response, maybe it's a bad expositionary line. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> the like, say to me in English. Oh my God. Yeah. How many bad shows have done that? Even good shows, actually. But uh, Stargate SG-1 spoofed that line so many times. Yeah. That was actually funny. All right. So moving on to our last category, what we dubbed as meta. So meta exposition information. These are the tools that you can use to convey that to the audience. In terms of structure, you have the sequencing of the story that, you know, the order that the scenes are happening in. Are they happening in a linear way, a nonlinear way? That also includes editing and transitions. Are we flashing back? Are we smashing two? Are we match cut? You know, like smashing. <laughs> Smash cut. Too. Smash cut to black. Like, again, be careful about overusing that and things like that. But there are clever ways in which you can make use of it when you need to. Also, we're looking at stuff like foreshadowing. So setting up things and paying them off, callbacks, even repetition. A great example of that is in Arrested Development, that line, there's always money in the banana stand. It seems to be just like a one layer joke that keeps getting you know called back to. But later on, it turns out the banana stand is literally packed full of money. <laughs> and Michael finds it out right after he set it on fire. <laughs> so that's an example of the repetition, the setup and payoff. 
stuff, and it's also some dramatic irony. There's always money in the banana stand, Michael. Why can't you hear me? I told you. No touching. No, 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 no. <laughs> to go back to that sort of meta element, tridimensional towards the audience, you have tile cards and chirons. And even if these are a kind of mundane point-blank exposition of a setting or time, there are always ways of making it visually or narratively interesting. Think of Fringe. Fringe often put their location chirons within the scenery itself. You literally had the ladders be part of a bridge or field that the characters were walking through and interacting with. I think that's a fun way of doing something novel with something so old. A more recent example is Jane the Virgin. They use this thing called a telestrator and they literally just stop the frame, draw lines on the screen and explain like the relationships between people because it's this very complex <laughs> telenovela kind of like so. Like a football game. Yeah, it's exactly like that. So another area that we talked about is themes. So the tools that you can use underneath that are things like metaphor and what you're actually saying through your character and story arcs usually speaks to a theme that you're exploring. Again, it's a little bit too on the nose for me, but the books that characters were reading in Lost, I think, told a lot about what they were going through on a thematic level. And I think so many viewers, actually including myself, learned more about those kinds of books and ended up reading them to understand more about what the show stood for. And BSG also did that with All Along the Watchtower, which expresses so much about what the characters are going through in that moment. In The Matrix, there's a book called Simulation and Simulacra by Jean Baudrillard that they like hide a little USB key in at the start. It's like basically on Neo's bookshelf. And that entire thing basically talks about this concept of hyper-reality and the entire thematic that they're exploring. So, so you're telling me if I had paused the movie there and just read the book, I wouldn't have, <laughs> wouldn't have needed <laughs> wouldn't to, have had to watch the sequels? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on to one that I really want to spend some time on is expectations. Not expectation versus reality, the 500 days of summer scene, right? That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> no, no. We're talking about kind of the audience's expectations about your show, about your characters, about everything. So the audience doesn't only have access to the information that you provide them with within your show or your script. They are not a blank slate. Audiences come in with an entire catalog of television, film, literature that they have seen or read already in their heads. They know all the common film trips they know the character archetypes whether they know them or you know they actively think they know them or not they're unconsciously in there they know common story arcs the hero's journey they come in with a knowledge of the rules of the world that we live in in the real world and what is normal and so they understand how those rules also might differ by genre for example in sci-fi it's normal to have aliens or what? characters can travel in space in supernatural they understand the strengths and weaknesses of like vampires and werewolves in their generic form sunlight silver etc so you have to take these existing expectations and knowledge into account because you're either going to adhere to them or break them whether you know it or not so if the rules of your world are different you have to find a way to make that really clear to the audience if someone who appears to be an archetypical western cowboy gunslinger is actually a pacifist you need to be aware that everyone's going to expect him to pull out his guns at the first opportunity and shoot and then you play with that expectation if your vampires sparkle instead of oh, burn in the uh, sunlight what? again that's something you should be aware of what the audience assumes is going to happen hard, hard pass hard pass <laughs> uh but it's great because it's just another tool in your arsenal knowing the audience expectations kind of sets the status quo and then you can let them believe that up until you spring a surprise on them i think that's why i have so many problems with the recent batman movies that just continuously retell the same exposition about how batman became batman and yeah. how his parents got killed because of a mugging we already know that concept. And the same thing with Superman. We know that he landed in Kansas and so on. So why do we need to watch that again? 
if you're not going to subvert that scene. So even within the telling of your story from start to finish, you can set up and play with audience expectations from only the information that you have fed them. So there are three positions the audience can be in in relation to the characters that can shift from moment to moment or case by case for certain pieces of information. The audience can be behind the characters where the characters know more about what's going on to the viewer and we are kind of left in suspense. They can either be with the character right side by side. We know exactly the same amount as the character and we're there with them. And that often engenders more empathy with them because we feel like we're right in the trenches with them. Or the audience can be ahead of the characters so we know more than them. We know that there's a killer hiding behind the door and that elicits a sense of tension. Oh my God, what's going to happen? So it's all about playing with your audience's expectations and assumptions for both drama and comedy. Hitchcock talked a lot about this idea of suspense versus surprise of showing a bomb under a table with two characters beside it, not knowing there's a bomb under the table and letting that scene play out versus just having the characters talk and then bam, the bomb explode without you even knowing there was a bomb in the first place. I think this idea of the tension and understanding what the audience knows and doesn't know is a tremendous opportunity for you to surprise the audience in a very entertaining way. Brad Nick, the this whole idea of being behind the characters, I think really played well in Lost, where in the season three finale, and again, this is a major spoiler alert if you haven't caught up to Lost, <laughs> which is kind of late by now, but anyways, if you don't know Lost, a lot of the narrative is told through flashbacks. And then in the finale of Lost, the whole episode, again, you had yet another Jack flashback episode about him being a drug addict and going through some stuff and so on. And then in the last scene, you see in the, he's like really miserable he calls someone and they meet at the airport in LA and you see that person come out of the car and it's Kate, Kate from the island. And you're like, wait, why does he know Kate in the, wait, this isn't in the past. This is in the future. This is not a flashback. It's a flash forward. Mm -hmm. And so really the surprise of the audience thinking and assuming it is a flashback when in fact all along it's a flash forward really makes you rethink the entire piece in a really, really compelling way. And just to step back to that framing of the story as well, you know, you have shows like Farscape, which is again a sci-fi show about this guy who gets expelled through this wormhole and ends up in a completely different part of the galaxy where he is the alien. And so in Instead of making you feel at home with characters talking in English and saying things out right, they're completely throwing you with him in this completely alien universe. Mm -hmm. This is not some leisurely exploration of the galaxy. This is a guy that's lost in space. And as soon as that happens in the show, then you are also completely lost in terms of where you are, who these people are. And this is especially true because they don't even speak our language. You know, it takes, I think, several minutes before he gets implanted with some device so that he can understand what these characters are saying. But before that happens, he doesn't understand any, any what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And it's all through action that we learn that these characters are prisoners on the run and so on, not through exposition of we are prisoners on the run. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at the rest of the show, Every subsequent episode will continue this kind of like alien vista where they rarely set up the intricacies of the world they visit because they do not want you to feel like you are at home in front of your TV, which if you think about it, is kind of the Enterprise's captain chair, right? It's a guy sitting in front of a screen. So we are the stranger in a strange land in Farscape. We are seeing the strangeness through John Crichton's eyes. And we are the audience playing catch up like he is. There's a cognitive dissonance between what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're learning. And so that is why genre offers so many opportunities to, instead of plunging you with exposition, you can subvert those expectations and understand what the audience knows versus what they do not know and play with that. 
Exactly. The audience doesn't always have to understand or know everything. I think that's really important. Yeah, the audience is not supposed to be an omniscient being. They're supposed to be part of the, almost part of the, the story in, in, in a way. Well, that's kind of a broad overview of what you can reveal through exposition and how you can reveal it and some of the kind of do's and don'ts of how to execute that. So in terms of our takeaways, number one, whether you need to convey character, story, macro or meta information, exposition is kind of what's used to reveal that to the audience. Number two, learn what is good exposition from bad exposition. Make sure it is a warranted answer to a narrative question or need and not just useless backstory. And number three, understand all those different exposition techniques that can be used, specifically within dialogue, action and prose, and on a meta or structural level. Today, my resource is going to be this book called Dialogue Secrets by William Martell from House Martell of Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's a really good book about dialogue, obviously, but William, as I call him, really breaks down all the different kinds of dialogue in greater detail than we did in this podcast, obviously, and also gives you exercises, tools, tips, and tricks to really make them sound more authentic and engaging instead of just info dumps. I've actually read a few of William Martell's books. He has the, all these little kind of like books called uh, the Blue Books, mm -hmm. and they're very cheap on ebook readers, like three bucks or something. And they all have a lot of really helpful exercises and information. So I recommend pretty much anything he's written. Uh, in terms of my resource, this is just a fun little video. It's called Escape from Dull Exposition. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's basically a little comedy instructional thing that a film school made, riffing off of the whole like Snake Plissken Escape from New York. But they're very, <laughs> you know they're telling you the rules of exposition in an expositiony way. Of a scene it's all very meta it's fun and it's also very entertaining which is so meta exactly uh, all right so that brings us to the end of our episode so as always thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our little podcast and you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 24 and since this is the first time we actually mentioned this officially you can go back and look at every show note ever of every episode ever by just going to paperteam.co slash the number of the episode so for example the first one moving to la paperteam.co slash one to get all the links and content that we brought up in the episode. If you have any reviews that you would like to leave for us, we would love that. Uh, you can, again, find that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. Any reviews that you do leave us is going to help us get noticed, get some more listeners, and uh, we can keep bringing you guys some good content. I'm on the Twitterverse at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinion, or expositionary techniques that you would like to share, you can send them at ask at paperteam.co. That is, again, co.com. Next week, we are going to be doing a special little Christmas holiday Christmas. special. Jingle a, a holiday special special, as it were. It's also going to be our last episode of the year, so tune in for that. It's going to be a, a good one. All right, we'll see you then, and have a happy holidays in advance. And it, well, I mean, it's going to be released before the holidays. Well, so. then I won't say that. Have a sad holidays <laughs> until we wish you a happy one next time. <laughs> see you then. Bye.